This is Dialogue in Review. Thank you, everyone. Yate Osio, Farina King Yenishye. I'm Farina King. It's nice to have you all with us this evening on Sunday, November 21st. And I'm on the editorial board of Dialogue. I'm a, a member of that. And um, I briefly said my name in Navajo, but I'll also inter- introduce myself by clans. I have some relations here, even, you know, the ne- uh, fellows on, on this panel. Um, so just calling out to my, my relations out there. And I'm, I'm really grateful to be with you all this evening to talk about this awesome indigeneity and Mormonism issue that Dialogue recently published this past summer, 2021. And this is Dialogue's newest initiative, Dialogue in Review. And I'm going to give kind of more um, this brief introduction <laughs> um, and then we will have a opening prayer uh, with Cynthia Connell, who hopefully can join us soon. And then I'm going to share a song, actually, and do a brief introduction of the panelists. But they are mostly going to have some time to share uh, background about themselves and how they became involved and contributed to this wonderful issue. So some brief background about Dialogue in Review and this meeting is Dialogue in Review is a quarterly webinar series that features some of the journal's contributors and sometimes other other people, maybe folks who can talk about these, these subjects from their different backgrounds and perspectives. And we come together and talk about the most recent issue. We start today talking with authors from Dialogue Summer 2021 Indigeneity Issue, as I shared already. If you haven't yet read it, that issue, along with the entire 50 plus years of the journal scholarship, poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and art, as well as all of our digital offerings, including this new series, is accessible at dialoguejournal.com. And that is just incredible because I get messages all the time still of of students or different people who want to read some publications, but they don't have access to it. So this is open access and something to share and to read, right? And to talk about as well as um, there's some really awesome features. Some of the um, uh, contributions, excuse me, contributions to this issue have an audio done. And I know I I did a piece um, about my father and his journey of healing and how he became a doctor. And I was able to read that out loud and there's others. So check that out. For today's panel discussion, if you are with us live on Zoom, you are welcome to post, please, respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. We'll also follow along with what folks have to say on Facebook, where we are also live. Our conversation today engages with important perspectives on indigeneity and Mormonism. The views expressed are those only of the individual panelists. You know, even for myself, I always share 
that I am a Deneto Gamali, a Bilagana woman, and, and that's my distinct perspective. And I do not speak for all Navajos or all those people. So that's something we want to emphasize here. We're speaking as, as individuals. Um, these panelists, we do as panelists, we do not necessarily reflect um, our, our perspectives or our voices do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. They also do not necessarily represent those of other indigenous Latter-day Saints or those adjacent to this faith tradition. We speak from our experiences and honor our ways of knowing and the self-determination of all of God's children. We are grateful to eat each of our panelists for their willingness to share their time and perspectives as we follow dialogue founder Eugene England's directive to quote truly listen to each other respecting our essential brotherhood and sisterhood I'll add and the courage of those who speak dialogue he reminded us quote serves both truth and charity and I really want to thank Rebecca um, for bringing us together. She made this happen too. And, and the fabulous, wonderful people at Dialogue that made this issue happen, Taylor and, and so many others. And, um, and then acknowledge as well, no matter where we are, a lot of these conversations of indigeneity, they can't happen without us also um, recognizing that we all are in indigenous lands and there are stories there and histories that matter and lives that matter of indigenous peoples. And so I'm speaking in Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma and the United Katua Band of Cherokees, which um, the, the Cherokees came to through the forced removal of Trail of Tears. And it was ancestrally the homelands of Osage people. So for me, I'm, I'm always really thinking about that with my students and, and where I'm coming from. I'm a history professor at a historically Native American university, Northeastern State University in Tahlequah. Um, and it was founded by the Cherokee as the Cherokee National Female Seminary. So that's really um, always front and center in my mind. And I hope and ask you all learn, continue to learn of the indigenous peoples and communities and how to support them surrounding you. That's something I, uh, I really wanna emphasize. Now, um, let's begin with a prayer and invocation shared by Cynthia uh, W. Connell. And Cynthia, thank you for joining us. I'm going to briefly share some background about you because you are, are great and it's great to see you today. Cynthia has, she graduated from Brigham Young University with a bachelor's in English. She was called as a full missionary to the Arizona Holbrook, Arizona Phoenix Mission. While a student at BYU, she was called to serve as the Native American Cultural Specialist for Temple Square. During her time at BYU, she was employed as editor for the Eagle's Eye magazine. And if for those who don't know it, the Eagle's Eye was founded as a Native American student magazine at BYU when BYU once claimed uh, one of the largest student Native American student populations in the country and were spearheading in Native American programs at that time, um, in especially the 60s and 70s. During her, uh, oh, 
after graduation, excuse me, um, Cynthia worked in native education in public schools. Her writings have appeared in various media publications, including the Enzyme Magazine by Common Consent, and most recently, the Exponent 2 Magazine. She and her husband, Richard, served as alumni presidents of the BYU Former Student Offices Society and the BYU Native American Alumni Association. She and her husband are the parents of three children and at this time are enjoying being first-time grandparents. Congratulations, Cynthia. And Cynthia's multicultural heritage includes Saponi, Cherokee, and Algonquian indigenous peoples. Um, thank you, um, Cynthia. Can you open with a prayer, please? Our kind, beloved Heavenly Father, at this time we are so grateful for the technology that allows us to meet together, for those who prepared their hearts and their minds to be able to be on this panel and for their willingness to expose the thoughts and feelings of their, their minds in such a way that we might learn, that we might learn not only intellectually, but spiritually. We ask that thou would help us during this time of illness for our nation and world, that we will be mindful of those who have passed on to the other side and for those families that are going to be without loved ones this holiday season, we pray that their spirits might be comforted. We ask that thou might help us as Native people to be able to come together in unity, to share the blessings that we have to offer this nation, and for the spirit to protect our environment and our sacred teachings, our languages, and our cultures, as these are precious gifts that we know have come from thee. Help us, Father, that we will be able to listen with peace in our heart, even if things are expressed that we may not always understand or agree with, but help us to be able to feel thy kindness and share love for those who have prepared this night. And we say this in the name of thy son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Thank you. I know that it also is a, a practice a common in dialogue to include song. And um, I think that's beautiful because um, singing is essential to prayers and especially among indigenous peoples, the prayers are songs. Like when we say singers, singers are healers, they are um, spiritual leaders and, and there's so much power and, and significance to that. So I do appreciate that that um, emphasis in music is here. And so uh, because of um, that, I, I wanna share with you all a song that I love to sing. I actually um, had a workshop this weekend that I just came from with the Center um, Center for the American West. And I'm working on a manuscript about Navajo Latter-day Saints and was uh, talking to them about it. And I actually shared this song with them because um, there's an article I recommend by Kenneth Romer. And he quotes um, Denise saying, you know, this isn't just a poem 
this song is my identity. And in these songs are embedded not only prayers and connections between a being and um, metaphysical, you know, all things around us, right? But it is essential to who we are and, and values. And this song is Zith Diyin, Sacred Mountains, and reminds us that mountains are temples, mountains are churches. <clears throat> Hey ne yanga, hey ne yanga, hey ne yanga, hey ne yanga. Dies it be in, dies it be in the jone, yeah. Hey, dies it be in the jone, yeah. Ne yanga. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sana guy big a hajo ago. Dies it be in, dies it be in, jone, yeah. Hey, dies it be in, jone, yeah. Ne younger. Sana guy big a hajo ago. Sisna geni, your guys it Sana guy big a hajo ago. So zetzele, dok ejezele, sana gai big e hajo ago. Heya, heya, neyanga, heya, heya, neyanga, dok o osle de dechetle zetle, sana gai big e hajo ago. Dizet bien, dizet bien, ne jone, yeah. Hey, dizet bien, ne jone, yeah. Ne yanga. De benetsa, ya bashini setle. Hey, ya, hey, ya, ne yanga. Hey, ya, hey, ya, ne yanga. So, uh, thank you for letting me share that song with you. It, um, I learned it actually from Sharon Birch, who sings a version of that. But as I sing it among my family and relations, they tell me these are songs that go back since time immemorial, that our ancestors have carried these prayers and singing of, of our sacred mountains and essential to who we are and where we come from and also our presence and future. So um, now I will turn the time to our panelists. Today uh, we have, I will briefly say their names, but then I will ask them by that same order to briefly introduce themselves and how they entered this conversation, this dialogue, special issue of indigeneity. And if they don't mind sharing that in about a couple minutes each, and then we'll open up with some questions that I have for them. I will be facilitating our conversation this evening, but if they have anything itching, you know, that they want to share, please, you know, don't hesitate to send me a message in the chat, raise your hand or, or show some kind of sign you'd, you'd like to add um, something. But I will be more um, calling on each of them because of our, our these Zoom meetings, I think, to help with the flow of our conversation. But um, first, we have uh, Eva Big Horse with us this evening. 
and she contributed to the round table about Native American perspectives on Columbus. And Sarah Newcomb, who also was a contributor to that round table, Ronnie, uh, Ronnie Joe Draper, Dr. Draper with us this evening, who um, was a contributor as well to the round table and James Singer. Um, and it's great to have you all with us this evening. And then I, I was a part of that round table as well as the um, contribution of a short story about my, my father, a Diné doctor and his journey of healing that I share in that, that issue as well. And there's so many um, great contributions to the issue. We wish we could have everyone here with this e um, with us this evening. So we encourage you all, please, you know, be sure to read that issue, check it out if you haven't um, read it closely. And to let you know, um, I have to say this before I, I open it up, starting with Eva introducing herself, that um, not only read that issue, but please keep in mind, Dialogue is doing a lot of great events. I will reiterate this, I'm sure, by our closing. But next week on Sunday, November 28th, Dialogue Gospel Study will be with Dr. Amy Harris at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. So everyone is um, invited to that. All right, Eva, can you go and introduce yourself and, and how you entered this dialogue? Hi, Frina. Yeah, sure. Nyawaskiano Seguego, Eva Big Horse Nikyaso, Gayokono Nio Kunzate, Ganyate, Niwagashaute. Hello, everybody. My name is Eva Big Horse. I am Turtle Clan of the Cayuga Nation, born for the Hushkahadzoho Clan of the Diné Nation. Um, I was invited to contribute an article based on an experience I had as a student at BYU um, about a decade ago. And at that time I was just friends with Farina. Uh, we met on campus and she interviewed me for some research that she was doing. Um, so that's how I met Farina. And then we've just been friends ever since. And this opportunity came about and we've had lots of conversations about Columbus and indigeneity, especially at BYU um, as indigenous uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So glad to contribute and participate in the discussion today. Oh, yeah. Sarah Newcomb. Amahual, Sarah Newcomb Diwau, Timtianu Ama, Lakskik Deep Digu. Good evening. I am Sarah Newcomb. I am Simtian of the First Nations. I am of the Eagle Clan. I am currently in Dallas, Texas, land of the Wichita, Comanche, Caddo, and Cherokee, and other smaller tribes. I have a bachelor's specializing in nonfiction and creative writing with a minor in philosophy, and I have an associate's in journalism. And I've spent the last four years writing, blogging, and speaking about my experience being raised as a Lamanite. I do this to honor both younger generations and to honor my ancestors, to acknowledge their history and the continuation of my people. And through some of my work, Farina had reached out to me a few years ago, and that's how I kind of got to know her and became part of the dialogue issue. And in that, I wrote about some of the experiences I had and what I was taught about indigenous history and some of the problems that came from that. And I ended my article with focusing on honesty towards children. My Tsimtsian teachings about family, acceptance, and balance are why I not only speak up for their true history, but also speak up for 
religious freedom, including towards those who identify as Lamanite. That I hope we might continue to discuss these issues and show kindness and support for indigenous religious paths and wisdom and future conversations. Toyaks at noon. Thank you. Okay. And uh, James, James Singer. James Courage Singer Bilagana Nishle Kiaani Bashishin Bilagana Dashache Ashihe Dashanale. That's how I uh, present myself in Navajo. Um, I'm uh, um, half Navajo, half white, but that's uh, twice the fun, I think, is, is how it goes. I think that's the saying is. Um, I'm a professor of sociology and ethnic studies at um, Salt Lake Community College. Um, aspiring political politico, I ran for office for, for U.S. Congress in 2018. It's the first Native to run for office from a major party from Utah. And uh, as you can see, I'm here in Salt Lake, so I didn't win. And uh, <laughs> and maybe that's a blessing in disguise. Uh, but uh, Farina and I um, connected on this issue um, from in, in reaction, specific um, specifically responding to. Uh, Clark Hinckley's book and how he was presenting his so-called history about uh, Christopher Columbus and the church. And so we had a wonderful panel um, at, at BYU and it was well attended and I think it had a great response. And because of that, we, we uh, I think it was the impetus to have a, a, a writing um, session to have to put into dialogue. And so I think we're all very proud of the product that, that has, has come about. So, okay. <laughs> Farina, and um, I pass it on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for clarifying that background too. You know, I think that helps people who may not have read the issue yet to have that grounding. Um, uh, Dr. Ronnie Joe Draper. Equi, Nekna Ronnie Joe Draper. I am from the village of Wispus. Um, I'm Yurok. Um, and I have the great fortune of joining you from Yurok lands here in what is now known as California. Um, my internet is coming in and out, so I think I'm popping in and out <laughs> as well. Uh, so I apologize for that, but um, I think those are uh, our current um, issues, one of the current issues of um, living and being on um, native lands and in native country. Um, I um, came to this conversation. Um, I also was part of the panel that was on, on BYU campus. Um, and I wrote a um, in which I um, declared that I would be giving Columbus no more of my time and um, having to sort of even recognize um, or the expectation of recognizing Columbus as um, sort of a, a kind of, you know, a forebearer of, um, you know, an LDS lore and and my resistance to that, and then my students' resistance to my resistance. So um, that's 
how I came to the conversation. Fortunately, we heard, I, I think we heard most, you know, there were just a few times you were getting a little slow, but that was clear. Thank you, Ronnie, Joe, and for also giving some more content. Oh. Yeah, we, we heard you. So thank you. Thank you all. And um, I, I also have to say a little background about that round table. So some of the folks like Sarah and Eva were not there at that panel that was held at BYU that James and Ronnie Joe were referring to, but they were certainly on my mind <laughs> and I wanted them to be there if they could have been. And so it was really great that the issue we could hear all have all our voices together because everyone on this panel, you know, who contributed to that published roundtable have certainly, um, you know, beyond just that publication have been involved in discourse about issues, you know, why is it? Uh, it still is eye-opening for people when an indigenous person tells them, hold on a second, pause here. Why are you praising? Why are you so defensive of Columbus, right? And so here we are, you know, still having to, have that conversation even in 2021. Um, but we actually are not only going to talk about, you know, the issues thinking about Ronnie Joe saying, paying Columbus no more of our time, you know, <laughs> it's like, how, how do we um, move beyond that? But, but it really was tied to broader issues, right? Legacies of settler colonialism, um, Native American and Indigenous experiences on a, on a broad level, and especially um, Indigenous peoples who have encountered, affiliate, however they relate to the Church of Jesus Christ, or any Mormon tradition, really, right? And, and a lot of questions about um, memory, and as Sarah brought up, the significance for our children, for future what, you know, and, and these connections between past, present and future. But I want to ask some questions that kind of, um, that connect more broadly to aspects of the indigeneity issue as with our panelists here today. And um, this question, I'm going to reframe it a little bit, but just to put it out there as a sense is um, the issue, it reprints Lacey A. Harris's essay from uh, a dialogue issue back in 1985. And actually, oh, I should have brought it with me. That issue, I, I have treasured. Um, it has a textile of a, of a Navajo rug, the yoga. And um, I've just really always that was really important for me, foundational for me, that issue in 1985 of how I've thought about uh, Latter-day Saint and a Native American identity. Um, and so having this, this essay rep reprinted in 2021, some like dialogue, they think this, I, I wouldn't call it maybe the first piece, um, but it might've been, who knows, but they, they've been recognizing it as, as, you know, a foundational piece in a sense of an indigenous author published in dialogue. I think um, Jane Hafen was also in that edited volume. So, you know, she was published as well in that volume. But um, so I'd like you all, it's not that you have to necessarily engage with Harris's essay, 
which really delved into Harris unpacking, um, unpacking and and particular indigenous Latter-day Saint identity. But um, considering what you think maybe from 1985, when there was an issue that was comparable to this issue, you know, 1985, what was going on then? Or even if you want to just think about how do our perspectives today in the 21st century, 2021, you know, what, what do you think has changed or some constants, you know, in, as all of you have delved into questions of the past and, and issues of the church and Native Americans and, and people who identify as Native American and Latter-day Saint in all these different ways. So that's something I want to put out there to reflect on. And who will I ask to go first is, um, why don't I ask, let, let's hear from Sarah. Do you mind talking about that, getting us started on that? Because I know you've thought a lot about Lamanite identity and or appropriations of Lamanite. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to dive in. I think one of the biggest things that have changed since 1985 is simply the age of information. We have so much at our fingertips now, like that was a contributing part for me. But I, so I've left the church and I do not identify as Lamanite. However, my mother does and it has meant a lot to her. So I've tried to balance supporting that identity while I navigate history. And <clears throat> once I was navigating my way with history, learning my people's history was extremely important to me. And so I think individually, everybody has their own path, but with indigenous history, we have so much more written now, especially from indigenous people themselves and more access to it and more ways to find it. So that's why I bring in, you know, from 1985 to now, there's been kind of a wake up at least in small circles that I've been in with understanding and being able to access the indigenous histories that I couldn't access or didn't know how to in 1985. Um, so that, that to me has been a big influence. And I, I think watching some of the older generations, like with my mom, she, she holds more of that faithful aspect. And so our conversations had been interesting when I would talk to her about indigenous history. I was trying to pull and pull and try to get knowledge from her. But a lot of that at times was lost. And so I've had to reach out to different Dimtian people, people in British Columbia to kind of learn my people's own history. And so I don't think I could have done that as well in 1985. But that to me is just one of the simple changes that has has happened. Um, I think it's important that we acknowledge that we're discussing interpretations of the Book of Mormon also when we're talking about Columbus, and that the Book of Mormon never states where the great waters were. It never states a name of the person that came. Um, it never labels any specific group as, as Lamanite. So when we're teaching these things, we need to keep that in mind that they're interpretations of the Book of Mormon and that those interpretations, how we interpret them, affect 
the next generation of indigenous children. On top of that, it also affects the indigenous Taino people who greeted Columbus and his men. So there are people that are impacted by interpretations, but I think there needs to be also paths for faith, paths for belief and respect. So I don't know if that <laughs> quite answers any of your thoughts or questions, but that's where I sit with it. Yeah, thinking about that, um, if we could turn James, do you have some thoughts, you know, that you can follow that or, or something else that came to mind? And then I'd love to hear from Eva and then Ronnie, Ronnie Joe. Yeah. Yeah, Sarah brings up some some interesting points there about um, Lamanite identity. And um, I've, I've noticed that since 1985, um, especially after um, President Kimball, right, had passed and we had the ascendancy to President Benson, um, it felt like there was a shift in the church, actually. Its focus changed from actual Native Americans to the Latino and Hispanic populations. And so I remember feeling um, the, the change, right? We had a, a Native branch, I think, up here in Salt Lake City that was canceled, <laughs> basically was canceled. Um, and then we saw the, the expansion of, of um, the church internationally. And that moniker of Lamanite wasn't attached to, to these people. And so I felt like maybe it, it hit the narrative a bit better because of just how successful uh, the missionary work and the expansion of, of uh, the LDS church in, in South America and Latin America and how um, maybe it didn't fit as well for, for natives here in, in the United States. And so there, there is something, something um, that I thought was, was just a, a big change in how the church started to talk about uh, Lamanites and, and what that meant. Um, some other things that happened was also how, um, apart from that international expansion, I think it gave um, a different kind of consciousness to to members. Um, maybe not all members, but it made us, it made people think much more outside of Utah, and how um, the gospel had to be. Well, how do I say this? had to be much more accessible to, to everybody. It wasn't just a Utah culture. It had to be a culture of God. And I remember um, a, a talk by Elder Oaks, I think it was in 2005, um, that he, well, around that time, right, where he's mentioning about the culture of God and and how it is not necessarily the kind of, of insular culture you have in the Intermountain West. Um, and then also um, what President Hinckley said around that same time was that, uh, you know, um, bring what you have, bring the best of what you have, and we can add to it, which I think is a very interesting kind of um, approach to culture and how the church can combine those two. But with things like Clark Hinckley's um, so-called history and other thematic books that are put out by Deseret Book, which is, you know, the commercial literature arm of the church, basically. Um, it, it still, it still keeps very much entrenched that kind of, of culture. And I, I, I feel that that is um, actually quite alienating for, for a lot of folks if they don't quite fit into that mm -hmm. style. 
So anyway, yeah. just, just some ideas. No, great, great points and, and helping to fill in some history here, right? Like 1985, what's going on in the church with a shift of the passing of Kimball. And he, he literally called it Lamanite cause like the programs that he had. And that was a time of a shift of dismantling a number of those programs. Right. Where I also had the reference to, to BYU and, and Eagles, um, the Eagle's Eye magazine, what it tra- traces back to. Eva, what are your thoughts? Um, similar to what James was discussing, um, I think that the 80s was kind of some, those shifts were taking place because my parents met and were married in the mid 70s. Um, and President Kimball had a lot to do with their, their conversion story, their motivations to learn more about the church. Um, and they would share that openly, you know, in home settings and, and teachings, I remember. Uh, so I think I just, I, I, me as a, as a child of that generation, I definitely felt the change. And especially as, as a student at BYU, I grew up in, the, in a home where both my parents were native. Uh, my dad was a part of that, the placement program. Uh, my mom would speak so highly of all the supports she had as a student at BYU in the 70s. And so when I started at BYU, there was like nothing. I remember feeling that because I was like, my mom always talked about, you know, these, these glorious supports as for indigenous programs and clubs and um, just spaces for indigenous people to come together, indigenous students to come together and meet. And at the time, in her time, I guess they heavily recruited. So a lot of her native friends were not even members of the church, but they just wanted an education. Um, just a huge difference by the time I had attended BYU in the late, um, I started 2007, graduated 2011. And so I, I felt the absence of those programs and it made it very difficult. Um, I think those are my biggest takeaways and observations um, mm-hmm. about that, yeah. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that personal connection to my parents met at BYU um, on a blind date. (laughs) My my dad was their president of Tribe of Many Feathers at a point that had um, over 100 members. And yeah, even I went to BYU, we crossed paths about the same time when there were less than 100 Native students um, with over, you know, 30,000 students. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up, which we'll, we'll get to as well with contextualizing the panel and the round table that followed. But um, Ronnie Joe, do you have thoughts about this question of these changes or even continuities over time with um, Latter-day Saint indigenous experiences and insights? Yeah, I think I maybe come to it from a slightly different angle because I joined the church in 1984. So um, 
you know, maybe things were a little bit different for me. Um, you know, I, I remember, of course, a little bit of a wrestle with the missionaries who insisted that I was Lamanite when, um, and, and I insisted that I was not. And, you know, and, and they told me that the Book of Mormon was about my people and, you know, and I told them, I know the history of my people and this isn't it. This is, you know, I, I love the Book of Mormon. I, I think that those stories are, um, you know, they stir my soul in a particular way, but they um, are Oh, I think we lost Ronnie Joe for a minute. Are you there, Ronnie? You might. Hey, you're on mute right now. But you were just saying, and I appreciate you said you've come into it from a different angle of uh, you joined the church in the 1980s and you were like, having debates with the missionaries <laughs> telling them, so go ahead. Right. Uh, yeah. They telling me that the book of Mormon was the story of my people. And I said, I know the story of my people and this isn't it. Um, that I can appreciate the book of Mormon and I can, I can feel it stir my soul. Um, but not as a history of my people. And then later when the introduction of the Book of Mormon changed to that it doesn't represent a history of as, as, as originating as of the Americas, I felt vindicated. I felt like, um, I felt like, yeah, I, I knew that already. And, um, and, and that, that introduction was catching up with the, the knowledge that I already knew in my body. And, um, and, and I wish it had been, I wish it had been louder, you know, the change to that introduction to, um, to validate what I knew but it, it seemed like that change was just a quiet change. And, um, and that I think that even some people I meet now don't know that that change is there. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that. that's right. mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And then in case someone suggested, if your um, if your internet is kind of um, in, in and out, maybe, turning off your video and, and trying audio, but, but we were able to hear um, most of that. And, and thank you for sharing. That's so, so powerful to think about how you are saying, this is not a history of my people. When, when confronted with someone telling you this, the, the book of Mormon is a history of your people. Um, so watching time, we're already <laughs> well into this. Um, but we only have a couple more questions and this one question I'm going to frame it as it actually gets at, um, the round table back to the round table that, um, folks here contributed to of, you know, um, James brought is mentioning Hinckley's book, 
and um, how the panel in many ways was uh, a response, to be honest, to the book, but but more than that, right? It it's, um, was finally a platform, I think, for indigenous indigenous voices in, in this matter of how the Book of Mormon as Sarah is being interpreted, right? And as she emphasized. And in the piece, you know, Eva shares experiences about how when she was a student at BYU, um, how she tried to bring awareness even before the panel, you know, that we had years later, she was there as a student trying to bring awareness to this interpretation, what it means, the impacts from an indigenous perspective and voice. And Eva delves into some really complicated aspects that I think Ronnie Joe's statement also, what, what she just shared also gets complicated and messy is right. That when we say native American and say indigenous, there's a lot of different perspectives people coming, even this panel, we have a lot of folks coming from different places, our upbringing. I, I've met some Native American converts to the church who believe the Book of Mormon is their history. They really believe that, you know, although Ronnie has, Ronnie Joe has confirmed it is not, right? And and so what I'm wondering is, um, there's questions about what BYU and in, in, instructional structures in the church, their response to Eva, for instance, and how they keep bringing in Hinckley to come, come speak. There's that question that often is, is dichotomized of non-native native, or, or basically, especially in the church, white perspective and, and native perspective. But what about, you know, what happens and what is the significance of how do we get at more perspectives and, and one, you know, there's kind of like swimming, going up, uphill of, you know, there's a very dominant, like hegemonic voice of interpretations of the Book of Mormon, or, you know, in, at BYU, at these institutions, who did they invite again in 2021 was Hinckley. He was invited again, even after the panel that James, Ronnie, Joe, and I were on, he was the one at Education Week, again, giving that same workshop, right? So there's that angle of what are your thoughts about, um, you know, how often these uh, mainstream is, is seen as a, a homogenous perspective that is uh, especially from a white interpretation, but how then... Can you, can you access and, and really project indigenous voices and perspectives? And then what kind of complexities come into that, right? That even Eva's story and other stories get into because there are so many different perspectives. So I'm opening up that. <laughs> That's heavy on my, my big question here. Um, let me ask anybody, Ronnie, do you want to go first, Ronnie, Joe? Yeah, I think... Um, I think that there, there are several layers, I think, to the problem. I think that, first of all, if indigenous people are viewed as folks who need to be saved, which we, which is how this, how we have begun, right? And how, and how, um, you know, and if, if we look at the Book of Mormon, even as you know, if we it, if we look at the Book of Mormon as the the origin of 
of indigenous peoples, then indigenous peoples need to be saved. Um, and if we look at the history of um, the Americas and settler colonization, still we have a perspective that's overlaid with white supremacy where um, the indigenous peoples of the Americas also need to be saved because of, um, because of their you know, lack of knowledge of Christianity or their, um, you know, because of a misunderstanding or the, the, the lack of understanding of how, um, you know, the way indigenous peoples um, of the Americas um, participated in agriculture and, and their um, ways with government, culture, the arts, ceremony, all those things um, appeared to those who came here as or savage or less than or uneducated or whatever. Mm -hmm. So if we're a people, oh gosh, am I, am I breaking up again? If we're no, people who you. need to be yeah. saved, we're certainly not people then who need to be listened to. We're not a people I'm sorry, go. Oh, yeah. So you were saying, um, I, I appreciate this so much. You were saying that um, if, if we're seen as, if indigenous peoples are seen as a, a people to be saved, then, then they're not ones to be listened to. That's what you just said. Right. We're not the ones to, um, we're, not the, we're not going to be seen as the ones who can save. We're not seen you know, and I think that's, you know, the challenge of even the Columbus story. You know, we're, we're if we if we see the the person who crossed the great waters, the many waters, as if that if we insist that person has to be a white person, and we don't imagine that that person could be an indigenous person preparing this land for. Christ, then we can't imagine that indigenous people are, um, are ones who can offer us words that would um, prepare us for the divine and for, um, and for the creator. So, you know, our, our stories have, um, our stories lock us into what's possible and right now what's possible is instruction from white people and and so our, that 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 we're locked into that future wow thank you that that is so well said really powerful thank you um eva do you have thoughts about this oh. um Yes, I do have thoughts. I would like to kind of focus my thoughts tonight on um, some aspects that are not included in the article that I already wrote. Um, there's some key points there, but just as you were reading the question, Farina, some things did come to mind that I, I, I know that indigenous people are facing today. Um, so within, I think American society, 
And I also see it play a lot within the institution of the church with, and especially also within the institution of the, of BYU um, is this kind of uh, this undertone that the restoration was made possible because it was God inspired. The colonization of this land therefore was God's will. And I don't agree that the genocide as a part of the colonization was what God intended. Um, and so I, I push back on that. Um, I challenge that and I will continue to do so. And it does. I got my first kind of awakening when I planned that demonstration at BYU. It was traumatizing for me for various reasons that I do go into detail about. Um, it took me years to recover emotionally and spiritually from that experience. But nonetheless, I, I, it's 10 years later, <laughs> I, I continue to have a testimony of Jesus Christ. I continue to have a testimony as a daughter, as a child of Lehi, and that's how I choose uh, to view myself um, today. Um, but I still, I particularly am interested in, in, in kind of what makes a good governing body. And so when I look at the government, uh, my traditional governments, for example, especially my traditional governments, because I am a citizen of the Cayuga Nation, uh, my father's a citizen of the Navajo Nation. Governance is interesting to me because the people feel the effects of that leadership. Um, and so when we live, um, you know, within the United States and they kind of glorify their founding story and the church kind of piggybacks off of that a lot, a lot. And so... Um, I have problems when there are views that I feel are common among um, church cultures, um, church members sometimes that, um, that glorify topics like, uh, you know, the doctrine of discovery. And Farina, you did write about that in your, your introduction to this piece, the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny. Um, and when BYU continues to bring in speakers like Hinckley to continue the glorification of Columbus, that is an act of hostility. To me, that's an act of violence against indigenous students, whether they admit it or not, and whether or not they're ready to have those conversations, it's happening. Uh, that's, and that's how I felt. I felt like I was fighting harder, way harder than I needed to fight just to voice my opinion. And BYU, I was a little, um, I had to reconcile some of those feelings of betrayal because I was dedicating my student life to doing good, to um, accomplishing my academic needs and grades and participation in extracurricular activities, being the good student. And I did, I finished all of that fine. But at the same time, I did not feel like they had my back. They did not support my voice, my experience, and they, they muted it. And so it's, it's just embedded so, um, so strongly into 
um, society, but also I, I feel it within um, church structure sometimes as well. Eva, I really appreciate you sharing your story. And I just, you know, was the one being like, please contribute to this because, you know, that was history in the making. And I, I think James was actually there at the demonstration when Eva was a student trying to set up a demonstration of, you know, calling, basically saying, let's not celebrate Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day, you know, for those who are less familiar with um, the round table or, or what we're talking about. And um, all the kind of backlash, even from unexpected places. I think that's always the shock, um, the shocking part. And I recently this past week was teaching my students um, about Navajo code talkers. Uh, a couple of my uncles were code talkers and sharing with them a lot of the struggle that my uncles and relatives have experienced of, you know, when they came back from the war, they couldn't vote in Navajo nation in, in states, even like Utah, it was one of the last states that allowed Native Americans living on reservations to vote. You know, a lot of that voter suppression that I know James' work goes really into um, and, and other folks here, uh, or even more, you know, the struggle of getting by some veterans who come home to no home, you know, like their homes uh, and that they had to keep confidential for various reasons, their, their service. And one of my students said to me, she summarized it so well, I was like, whoa, I got to write that. She said, basically, it's like they went to fight enemies abroad and then their neighbors, they don't know who to trust. Even their neighbors could be their enemy. And it's like they're facing it on all these on all these levels. And just what you said and kind of reflecting on your experience, that's really traumatizing when people who are supposed to have your back are shooting at your back, you know, are stabbing you behind the back and, and revealing those kind of true colors that they don't even, they're not even conscious of. They don't even understand how they're being violent. And that's really awful. Um, James and then uh, Sarah, love to hear from you. James, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, no, I think this is, this is fantastic. The, the main question I had coming up is, is why, why keep inviting Clark Hinckley to these things? What, what, what good does this do? Especially if there's already been, you know, a, a, a round table, some discussion about this. I know that we're not the only ones that are talking about this. And I think the, the answer is, and, and not to be cynical, but it's just his namesake, right? His father was the prophet. <laughs> he was the president of the church. That is a, a, a deeply invested kind of thing. Although we live within a democracy, um, I think we're enamored with the idea of, of a spiritual royalty, right? Kind of a... a, a a lineage that continues on. I think it shows that strength over generations, but um, I think, I, I mean, his book is incomplete. I think it's, it's actually really, um, it does a disservice to, well, I mean, it's, it's an, it's an armchair history. I'll just say that, but, but then why promote this? I think it's because it is a faith promoting kind of book. It is, already part of this narrative that's been constructed over, you know, nearly 200 years now. Um, well, not be that long. How, where are we at? Yeah, no, we're up there. It's like 200 years, right? Um, there is that. And, and um, that, that faith promotion, right. Of, of having 
safety in solidarity. The reason we don't have a book authored by one of these people here on this panel today through Deseret Book is because that would be contrary. And we know what the church feels about the spirit of contention. So I think already, if we are presenting a message that is not in line with the, with the, the set doctrine, then um, even if it's a wrong thing, like, like, you know, the, the, the priesthood ban and, and at least in our case that we're talking about here, that Eva brought up is this genocide. And that was the thing that I think affected me the most is this is doctrine. It is doctrine to say that the, that the, the genocide of the Native Americans, one, it doesn't apply to the second article of faith, that people will be punished for their own sins and not for someone else's, right? No, it says specifically that Indians will bear the brunt because of what their ancestors did, and that this was a necessary step in order for the restoration of the gospel to come forward. So if we are presenting an opposing view to this, like this, this is, this is pretty risky, I think. And so what I did is I had to, to pray about it. I said, is, you know, you've, you've taught me, I've been taught that I should pray. If I have these doubts, everything in my body, everything in my mind tells me that there would be no reason for a loving heavenly father to justify genocide to restore his church. There's just nothing in me that would say that. And the more and more I thought about it and prayed on it, the more that it came to me that it was, no, that is wrong. There is something wrong here. And it was then that I was, that I realized that the book of Mormon is a book of faith. James, it is a book of faith. It is not a history, but we've been taught it's a history. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that? I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm just flabbergasted by that, the faulty logic that, that's used to justify that. And we are talking about some of the systemic racism that is in the church. And it does, it does only kind of go one way when it comes to cultural exchange. Um, think if we did value indigenous knowledge as much as we valued the knowledge brought by pioneers to the church, right? Think of how we treat our relations, how we treat the land, how we treat um, um, the idea of the past and the future and how these are all connected, that there is an interconnection, that we're not above creation. We live within creation. I mean, these, these are all ideas that are harmonious in the gospel, but because they come from us, they're not valued as much. And so that embrace towards capitalism by, by church members, where it is now okay to, to exploit other children of Heavenly Father in faraway countries because, well, they're not American, basically is what it comes down to. And we have to buy and buy in order to create, because work is this ethic that's so important that it doesn't matter if we are just spending all the resources of the planet and, and putting life on it in a very precarious position, how, how, how we couldn't, how, how we can't see that what we're doing is absolutely dangerous. And so anyway, I, I, just, I just thought about that. I just thought about if, if we did value indigenous knowledge as much as we valued others, 
within a church that sees us all as equals, then we wouldn't see things like we do in San Juan County. So when Navajos actually finally took control of the, the county commission after the, the racial gerrymandering was undone, immediately the county wanted to separate from the Navajos and the other natives that were there. They wanted to separate. They, they rode their four-wheelers throughout Bear's Ears, destroying sacred sites and, and other kinds of artifacts um, at, to show right this idea of personal liberty, this hyper-individualism, which is against, again, what we believe as indigenous peoples, but also as if we're not one, we're not of the church. We're not. We're not of of God itself. And so, we are. We are seeing that those who are in leadership positions have been broadsided by the diversity of cultures and ways of thinking of the members of the church. And unless there is some reorienting of the leadership, um, just people in leadership, but also the approaches to it. I don't see that this doctrine will be recanted. In fact, I think it'll actually be strengthened as a response to the major changes that we're seeing towards political correctness or cancel culture or, or whatever it is. Thank you, James. It's interesting that um, you make that statement and uh, Rebecca's awesome. She's like quoting us in the chat <laughs> and opening it up to um, questions that the audience will have. But I will give Sarah some time to respond to this question as well before we do open it to any questions that the audience has. And we're going over the hour. So um, bear with us, but we will wrap up within um, you know the hour and a half total. Um, but what she wrote was how you noted the Book of Mormon is a book of faith. It is not a history. And um, here in Oklahoma, with 39 federally recognized tribal nations, it's, it is very eye-opening for me. And, and I've been learning so much of all these different peoples of the, you know, diversity is such a loaded term and in, in how it's used, but it is incredible that this, um, indigenous people's global studies, you know, just all the different cultures and peoples. And there was a big effort to um, open a first Americans museum in Oklahoma city that was represented, uh, representative of the different tribal nations that came to Indian territory, especially through forced removal, genocide, violence, and all the, all these different ways, but finding a new home. And interestingly, um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, became a, a sponsor, like a contributor of this museum and in family history. And there was a special opening of the of um, well, a special event, like a kind of fireside, where President Nelson did speak. And one of his biggest points at that talk, and I don't know if it's public or not, or how widely disseminated, which I think that's what James is also, your points um, emphasize to me, what resonated with me is how is this being disseminated? You know, what what is being put out as the doctrine? What is being, you know, received or, or whatnot? Um, but he emphasized in a statement, the Book of Mormon is not a textbook. It is not a history textbook. And that was a big point that he was pushing there, which I found it, it 
it stuck, it stuck out to me because it, and what you just said here, that's really, um, for me, a powerful connection. And then I strongly recommend as well of the references to Columbus for those, unfortunately, you know, I, as a historian, as a history professor, here we are Thanksgiving around the corner, people asking, do I celebrate Thanksgiving or not? What, you know, as we're unpacking and decolonizing or, or whatever people are, are trying to do, you know, to be a better person is that we're fed a lot of toxicity. We're fed a lot of lies and disinformation and especially regarding native Americans that I think Ronnie Joe's comments got at earlier. You know, I was a child put a headband with the feathers on and, and um, the paper jacket and, and then still like have conversations with my school, my kids, school teachers and see some things that I don't see much different from the time I was a child of what little, you know, and, and what little they learn about Native Americans and even the erasure of it, even in an area where I am now, I've lived in a lot of different places and I've lived in places with where some people thought Native Americans were extinct, where they never met a Native before. And here I am in a place with a very strong presence. Everyone like is Cherokee or knows someone who's Cherokee, you know, and it's a really strong presence. And I'm shocked by still the erasure and the misinformation about Native American and Indigenous histories and experiences that even our own children who are Indigenous are fed, that detachment that is being perpetuated that was even a part of the boarding school history that we learn about, all these different things. So on add on top of that, you know, religion or these other aspects that, that are, it's entangled, you know, it's intertwined with these aspects. So I recommend reading um, Resendez, um, Andre Resendez's book, The Other Slavery, if you do not know much about Christopher Columbus and you've been fed only the song of, you know, Columbus sailed the uh, sea blue, I can't even remember it, but you know that what, what people are fed about um, propping. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't even remember. Sarah, I want to be sure we hear from you on this. Could you speak? Yeah, I've really, I've really enjoyed listening to everyone. And so many things that, well, Eva, you, you and James both spoke about how our, that, that history of stating that there was God, you know, the whole genocide of our people was placed at our ancestors' feet, basically, for them being unrighteous or evil. That was one of the things that it impacted me the most um, growing up. My my views on that drastically have changed. As a child, I just believed it. And I was like, oh, if only my ancestors had been more righteous. And as a teenager, I dove into reading about Native American history and it would just weigh on me. Oh, if only my ancestors had been more righteous because the history of genocide is so heartbreaking. Um, as I read about Columbus, I, I would think that as a teenager, oh, if only my ancestors had been more righteous. It placed such a heavy weight and so hearing some of those pushbacks and challenges is so healing and beautiful. I just, I'm loving hearing these perspectives from indigenous people. Um, I, I'd like to just share a few things. I'll try to keep it short on time. Not just a few years ago, a missionary was teaching me the Book of Mormon was a history of my people and went on to say that indigenous people didn't have religions 
when Columbus came because our ancestors had turned away from God. And it was just, I, I was so nice. And I was like, okay, this is a very young person. And I just ended the conversation, but it, it was a struggle and it took months for me to not feel that like weight and that healing that I needed and to just acknowledge this is a young person. And I was like, why did they think that? Why do they believe that still? And so that's, you know, that's a lot why I blog. That's a lot why I write. And as I've studied the history of indigenous people, as it connects to Mormonism, I came across in the early 1900s, a letter written to a Maori chief in the Pacific Islands stating that the Native Americans in this land were the less righteous Lamanites and that the people in the Pacifics were saved from our fate because they were more righteous. And I found quotes from similar quotes addressing South Americans. So we, a few of you mentioned that we, you know, that change in the 80s. And I kind of wonder, is it part of those type of beliefs, part of those type of teachings? In 2018, I could be wrong, it was two, three years ago at BYU Hawaii at, um, not a fireside, I forget what they call them. <laughs> Anyways, uh, uh, some people were being, you know, the kids came and the students at BYU were being taught and that same letter from the early 1900s that called our people less righteous in North America was taught to the Pacific Islanders there. And so I was just blown away that this is still current. This is still being taught. So of course there's going to be missionaries that perpetuate that because it's not being talked about because there hasn't been people bringing it to attention. And Farina, I am so just, I love knowing you because of your wisdom and your kindness. It It's meant a lot to see and it's been so healing for me to see people speaking about these things. Um, I will, I will just kind of end. I had some notes that I, that I wanted to mention. Oh, that was what it was. You guys were talking about how you did the round table at BYU and I wasn't able to make it. That's when you went to talk about Columbus and I was just cheering for you all. And it wasn't a few months later, you know, the next year that the come follow me come come follow me new manual comes out and reiterated the columbus teachings officially after indigenous people had done a round table trying to discuss why it was problematic and as heartbroken as I, as I was in that moment i was like oh no you know we're back to the beginning the fact that indigenous people keep speaking out and sharing their wisdom this is what will create change at least in the indigenous communities, being able to show other indigenous teens, children, families that they can maintain their faith, that they can maintain acceptance for different paths while also standing up for indigenous people. You're doing it right here. Like, I'm just cheering for you all and I absolutely love you all. This is beautiful. So that's all I had to say and wanted to share. Thank you, Sarah. You're awesome. I'm just like blown away by all that. And um, I know that Cynthia has been on with us too. And she had, you know, some, some responses that I, I didn't, if she wants to share those, you know, before opening to some questions, because she even had 
some thoughts even on your on your last reference to what is being taught, you know, at these church schools, not only BYU, but thank you for also mentioning BYU Hawaii and indigeneity there and, and these aspects. Um, oh yeah. And Sarah mentions it was a devotional, a devotional there. Yeah. I don't know, Cynthia, did you want to articulate some of your thoughts? Um, I'm a little floored by someone suggesting that the Polynesians were spared um, the same suffering. I personally remember doing family history work about um, the Saponi people and reading. And in this year, they died of smallpox. And in this year, the remainder had smallpox. And finally, they were left with a few hundred. And I remember how that impacted me. And I just cried. I cried because the spirit within me remembered that, even though I did not know that previously. And having lived in Hawaii amongst Polynesian people, it is ridiculous to say that they were somehow spared the same suffering, measles, smallpox. I remember as a child, I'm sorry, I'm a little um, torn up about this, but I remember seeing James Missioner's wife. And I can never watch that movie without crying. When you see what measles did and you see what colonialism did, so the idea that one group of Lamanites or one group of indigenous people is just more cool than another, I, I really think that's one of the reasons the Lord never told us who specifically he was talking about, because we would treat them differently, and it wouldn't necessarily mean we would treat them better. All the people on this continent, all of our indigenous people across the world, have suffered in similar ways. And I just don't think it's right to suggest that this group suffered less because they were more righteous or not. It, it just makes no sense. Thank you, Cynthia, for sharing that and, and your own connection there. You know, a lot of us have shared, as, as I said, you know, the schools that we're going to the disconnect. My father was five years old when he was dropped off at a boarding school. James just wrote a beautiful, powerful piece. If um, folks want to look that up, I think it was for a publication of Teach for America, right? About his own father's boarding school experience. Um, but, you know, thinking about that as, as there's more attention right now to unmarked um, graves of the violence and death that even children had. Um, I think it's opening people up to, it's not only that, it's just this onslaught of, and, and in COVID-19, the pandemic, Native Americans and Indigenous peoples are disproportionately being affected by that. This is not happening out of a vacuum, right? And and people facing what, what are, you know, what are these ongoing impacts of violence and, and the you know, how are we needing to check ourselves, all of us, of really aligning with the values uh, that are, are told the golden rule, right? The foundational teachings, love one another, 
be one, as James says, you know, are referred to in all these different aspects. So thank you. Thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, we have a few minutes left for folks who can stay with us to address any questions from the audience. Um, Rebecca has been helping us to watch the chat. There was a question that caught my eye already in the chat was um, someone had asked if there has been any kind of letter writing campaign to Salt Lake about these issues. Like, I wonder if any of you panelists have ever written to Salt Lake about these, um, about these issues, about the kind of uh, dynamics and, and struggles we're, we're talking about here. As um, this is a question from Suzanne, thank you, who was told a number of the brethren or church leadership are influenced in <laughs> ways by letters. Anyone know of, of writing campaigns or have written a letter to the church leadership? I don't know of any, but they got a file on me, so I'm not going to write a letter. They <laughs> <laughs> know. No, I think I think that is a, a fantastic idea, but um, same. The the same the, the tone, like right? Just it's such a. Like you had, just for an example, right, that, that one bishop up in northern Utah who was speaking out against um, the children and, and the, the interview questions with the bishop. And he was totally, he was right, but because he didn't do it in the right way, I think he was excommunicated. So anyone wants to take that up? <laughs> well, something I want to mention, um, other folks say op-eds in newspapers, ways to write op-eds in newspapers or anyone, not only, I mean, this is something that frustrates me, maybe someone of the panelists, you know, what, what this question also evokes for us is it's also a balance of already for a lot of Native American Latter-day Saints they're facing so many affronts. I mean, I think at Eva, when you were a student at BYU, when I was a student at BYU, you know, I, I just felt like the weight on my shoulders of just trying to graduate, you know, you're just trying to survive, you know, and, and that's a student experience. What about people's just trying to eat, trying to keep their family together, trying to just like get by and then asking us to solve, you know, the problems that we didn't create necessarily you know like there's that balance too right to to um but yet a balance as well of not having you know whites come in and again be the savior i'm gonna save you right so <laughs> how do we balance all these different dynamics there right uh, eva you have your hand up go ahead um yeah just wanted to quickly comment here in relation to your comment and um james question about like writing letters and stuff once i had zero capacity it took it took me a while to even draft this article with you farina because i had to go back 10 years and kind of relive the experience um but i'm glad i did i'm, I'm in a place where i'm good i feel strong um i've had some long nights, you know, with my, with my savior that pulled me through, you know, those dark, dark moments where even members of the church and leadership just don't understand. Um, and that will happen, that will happen in life. And so I think as far as like letter writing to your local leadership is, is needed. Uh, letters to Salt Lake is great, but please don't put it 
on the shoulders of the indigenous members. That's not fair. We're less, we're less than 1% of the United States population and even less than church membership. Even if every indigenous member wrote a letter, it's not gonna, it's not gonna flood mailboxes, you know? So I think this is an invitation to all allies everywhere to, to write those letters. And me as an indigenous person, I would, I'm grateful for, you know, the, the countless allies that I do have. And I feel, you know, that kinship through actions um, in that way more powerfully than than anything else. So just wanted to make that comment. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to like back that up. What, what, what Eva is saying there is that there is that responsibility cannot lie with natives. That the main question that you have to look at is who holds the power? Who's making the decisions? Who, I mean, if you look at everything within the church, it is deeply embedded within white supremacy and, and being a white American. And so even if we, with the best of intentions as indigenous peoples were to petition leadership, it will come across as part of the larger social movements happening and that scene and it will, it, it will not have the same kind of effect. We need our white brothers and sisters. You do not need permission from us or anyone else who's a person of color to speak up against racism. It's in the church. It is there. It is wrong. And, and I believe you have the obligation to use that privilege of having white skin and being American to write those letters or, 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 or make, make the change. And, um, you know, the, the leadership, they know we're here. Uh, open invitation, you know, invite Eva, me, Ronnie, Farina, Nick, Sarah, we'll all come, we'll talk to you. But um, um, I, I think that's what we need from, from our white brothers and sisters. It would be lovely too, to be, able to speak up even in our congregations. You know, I find that, um, you know, words are said in Sunday school or words are said over the pulpit, you know, and I, um, you know, I am not, I don't feel at liberty to stand in those places at, at, at all times, you know, that, that I'll say words or I'll say, you know, I'll say my piece or I'll bear my testimony, but, um, but it is not welcomed. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways more so than having a declaration from my prophet, I need, I need the peace of my peers. I want to go to church with my peers, you know, in my neighborhood in in peace and be able to um, worship in and be in come you know that that is literally from my neighbors and i need my neighbors to be able to welcome to be able to welcome me, to be able to welcome my body, to be able to welcome my past, to be able to welcome my future, my children's futures, my grandchildren's futures, 
and um, and so I need I need my allies to speak up in church and to stand up in church and to um, say those words um, and and to bear testimony and and we're a testimony bearing people and so this it maybe is less about really writing letters it's about about standing in our holy places and saying our words. Yeah. Thank you, Ronnie. Cynthia has had her hand up and then I have, uh, my husband has been here too. So he'll have a question as well. And he contributed to the round table as well, Brian King, but Cynthia, go ahead. I really want to second what Ronnie Joe was saying. Um, there are places in my ward. I can't go. I can't be honest. It's not safe. And I'm really sad to say that. But my personal feeling is we're told that there's a time when you can't like, you can't give those unprepared virgins more oil. You have to stand with your own oil and be prepared. And to me, as Indigenous people, we have so much to offer. And if we stand up and say, this is how my people live. This is how my people got through. This is that. And we literally point a way to safety. And for me personally, when uh, COVID was at its worst and we were all stuck in ho at home and everybody was, was fighting amongst each other about politics in America, I didn't feel at peace but I saw a website um, coming out of the Calgary Alberta mission and it was for indigenous people. It was sponsored by the mission up there. And guess what? I felt the spirit. So to me, rather than trying to fix everybody else and say, you've got this all wrong, let's redo this. Instead, let's just light our own lamp and put it up high. And then those who have the spirit to feel it, they will come and they will feel the savior and they will know the difference. And to me, that's the only way of being able to deal with this. Thank you for sharing that. And um, so Brian here has been sitting with me and to be honest, uh, you know, a lot of my work it would not happen without his support. We have three children together. I have a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, 11-year-old. And um, he certainly made this round table uh, volume, uh, this piece come together because <laughs> his awesome editing skills and, and thoughts. So I'm glad he was able to be here with me. And he has some thoughts or a question that you wanted to share or put out there. Go ahead, Brian. Um, well, it was nice hearing all of your voices and seeing your faces because you're awesome. And uh, I just don't think your voices are heard enough. And that's one of the reasons why I was so happy to jump on this awesome project. Um, especially, uh, I think when James said we mo need more uh, like white allies, then I'm just thinking, well, um, I'm, uh, I'm right here. And uh, it just so happens I have written people. Um, I wrote. Uh, he does. <laughs> I wrote uh, Quentin Cook recently. He wrote, said a very nice um, talk in general conference that was uh, 80, 90 percent right there, and I liked it. But the rest of the 10, 20 percent, I got. I actually got a response from him, and it was very nice. And I was glad we were able to 
clear some of those things up. And, uh, but that's just me. Um, I edit for the newspaper and I also write um, for our local news. So I'm not afraid to voice my opinions. And, um, but I also know that after one of the things that makes being an ally very, very hard is that white people may not have the language to express their feelings. There's a huge learning curve. Um, when I married, I mean, when I married uh, Freina, this is almost 14 years ago, or 14, um, uh, the things that I would say were not as eloquent as the things that I can say now. And it takes time. It's also the that. language that you were taught. Absolutely. Like you were fed that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, on a note. Um, so you had to be humbled. <laughs> you do. You do. You do. Just like learning any language. If anyone's ever been on a mission and gone to another country and learned another language, you get corrected by children. It's yeah. embarrassing. I That happened to me all the time. Um, can you be humble and listen? And frankly, um, when you live in a society of predominantly white people, you don't get much exposure to use that language and you mess up and it's embarrassing and you look like racist. <laughs> and now what I learned to do is listen. And that's what we need is more listening. But part of listening is also speaking, which means that um, for me, I surround myself with uh, um, in areas where I have the opportunity to listen. Um, but it takes a lot of time. And so I'm, and when you're invited and when I'm invited, well. yeah. that's true. So I just wanted to say thank you all for sharing your voices because it's courageous. You make yourself vulnerable when you speak. I know that I've written articles that people are still really mad at me because whenever you write something, not everyone's going to agree with you. So I just wanted to share that. I think so much of all of you, you are all heroes to me, and I'm grateful for the work that you put into this. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Brian, for sharing that. Um, I know there are more questions, but I do want to respect everyone. This is a Sunday evening, and you all probably have meals or different places to go, and Ronnie has to run. Thank you so much, Ronnie, for your thoughts and, and perspectives and, and all the great work you do. Thank you, Ronnie. Um, I want to just... I'm so appreciative of this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Ronnie, what you said about peers that really resonated with me because this past year, um, it was interesting that there was a um, someone in my own congregation who said something very, very violent, like just something I never heard before at the pulpit. And I just felt enraged that I wanted to run up there and punch him. Like I wanted to take him down <laughs> off the pulpit. I never felt that. And I'm not even going to like repeat. It actually was something he said about Jews, not about native oh. Americans. It upset me about what he said about Jews. And I found out that I have Jewish, Jewish ancestors. And yet, even if I didn't, I still need to be willing, no matter what, no matter if, anyone, you know, disparaging another or saying something, we need to recognize that mm -hmm. and be able to hear that that's the listening and to stand for all our brothers and sisters, you know, and really do that. And so I had a confrontation with that person. And the crazy thing about it is 
he listened to me because I stood up, but I didn't punch him. I just kind of <laughs> talked to him with love. So I, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I just felt so angry, you know, um, cause I'm that way. I'm kind of a fighter personally, but, but I was able to now, like I'm able to talk to him and it, it's kind of a miracle of ways that like, I think he learned something and even I learned something by, by talking to him and like the way I did. And, and I think this is all important in this conversation is how do we really love one another and stop the hate, like stop that violence or whatever it is. That's always, that's the question, right? We're told love, 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 but how do you actually do that? Like, how do you actually do that in practice, especially when someone's hurting you and, and threatening your, your, threatening you and your children or whatever, you know, wow. So anyway, I just thought prompted to, to share that with you all. And to thank you all for joining us here this evening and please come again to dialogue and hear um, Dr. Amy Harris on November 28th and follow us um, as Rebecca was putting in the chat that we'll be sharing more of the materials, showing the video of the panel about Columbus, um, indigenous perspectives on Columbus. That will be shared. Uh, it is available for those who did not get to hear that. And uh, please follow everyone's great works. And there's uh, definitely more conversations to be had in the future. wado. Thank you, everyone, and we will close this evening. Thank you all for joining us. You've been listening to Dialogue and Review. To find more Dialogue podcasts, please visit us at dialoguejournal.com. And thank you. Dialogue Podcast Network.